I was talking to a couple of guys yesterday, and it's like, you know, we as a church have to figure out ways to engage our culture and figure out ways to speak to people about the good news that we have, that Jesus Christ is alive and one day He's coming back. Amen? That is the story that we begin tonight here as we begin the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there, for those of you that haven't figured that out, it's the last book in your Bible. If you get down there to Jude, the big book of Jude, go one more. You're going to find the book of Revelation. Tonight, our introduction to this amazing book. In the entire evening, will really be found in one verse. We'll look at a couple of others. But it is so important to look at this particular book the way that I believe the Lord intended it. And D.L. Moody was right when he said if God didn't wish for us to understand the book of Revelation, he wouldn't have given it to us at all. It makes no sense for us to have this book, which some say is nearly impossible to understand, if the Lord did not intend to speak to us through it. And we find some keys in the very first verse. We definitely find some further keys in the first ten verses But tonight, as we begin the book of Revelation, I want you to notice with me in the first verse that it says this, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This entire book is about the character, the nature of the Lord Jesus. It seems out of context that it would be filled with symbols, riddled with things that are difficult for us to imagine, hard for us to understand. And I want to set the stage tonight as we begin the book as to why I believe that the book of Revelation was written the way it was written. And it's not a mystery to all of you, if you've walked with the Lord for much time, that a very large percentage of denominational churches never teach on this book. Uh, They consider it nearly impossible to, to glean anything from. And the reason being is they don't let the book speak for itself. They go back to their particular doctrinal bent, and they cannot fill in the blanks, so to speak. But the word that is translated into English, Revelation, is a very simple Greek word. It's apocalypsis, and it means the unveiling. And so this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And as we look at that simple, very short statement, which could be a sentence in and of itself, the book of Revelation is Christ revealed to us. And it's not just Christ revealed in the future, It's not just Christ revealed in the present to John. It was not Christ revealed in the time alone that he lived in. It was the unveiling of the fullness of Christ. And so it spans the entire church age. It goes from the time of the birth of the church to the end of the church to the beginning of the millennium to the new kingdom, to the new heaven, to the new earth. It is all about Jesus. Amen? And so it's not a mysterious book in that sense. 
we would expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to want us to know about who it is that we worship. And so this book does that for us. And I pray that as we study, uh, we'll see the character, we'll see the nature, we'll see these uh, undeniable characteristics that God has always had in Christ Jesus, that the Lord himself is uh, just displayed before us in, in technicolor as we study this book. Uh, kind of mapped out our journey. It, it will likely take us a year uh, to finish this book, so hang on to your hats. Uh, don't miss days. If you do, remember, we do have a website. They're on there. You can go. They're free. You can download them. You can put them on your iPod or your iPad or your iPhone or your iShirt or whatever you have that, you know, now you can record onto. I don't know. Your eye earrings or whatever. Uh, you you can do that. You can grab CDs. You can give them to your friends. They're, they're great ways to get people to go, oh, that's kind of crazy. Your pastor's nuts. Good things to talk about, you know, because I don't care. A lot of people on this earth think I'm nuts, so if there's a few more, it's okay, as long as you get to tell them about Jesus in the process. Amen? Why don't we take a little bit of time here and just pray and ask God to speak to us as we begin tonight. Lord Jesus, we are so looking forward with anticipation to how you will speak to us through this book. Lord, it's been more than a decade since we have studied it chapter and verse in this church and God we just pray that you would unveil yourself to us that we would see you high and lifted up that we like the angels Lord would shout holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and thankfully who is to come God we can't wait for that day when the heavens are rolled away and your shining face beams down to come and get us as your church We look forward to that day, and we want to live our lives accordingly. God, we are blessed people, and so we ask you to bless us tonight with your presence, by your Spirit, for you to instruct us through the power of your Word. These things we ask of you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray them. Amen. As you begin to think on this particular book, there's some basic characteristics here that, that are found in all apocalyptic lit- literature, and, and whether that's biblical literature or otherwise, uh, these things are basically true. But you have a number of Old Testament books that are also apocalyptic. The book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah are examples of that. And so this is not the only book of, the, of unveiled things that exist in your Bible. The book of Daniel, very much that way. You see this gigantic statue that's got four different parts. And in order to understand those four parts, you need the rest of Scripture to help you understand what that's getting at, where it's going, how it applies to us in the church age, what's being said. The book of Revelation is no different. The same is true for the book of Ezekiel. There's this crazy thing that's this moving wheel in the book of Ezekiel, and it's surrounded with these many colors, and you look, it's like, well, what in the world is that? But these things that you find here, you're going to see the extensive, the, the monumental use uh, of symbols. And sometimes when people look at these symbols, it's just like, well, why didn't John, you know, how come Jesus didn't tell John exactly uh, what to write down? How come he used symbols? 
And I will get to that in a moment. But you're going to see things like beasts, and you're going to see fire, and you're going to see plagues and locusts and all kinds of stuff uh, in the book of Revelation. And as you look at those things, I think it becomes very clear to us when you look at what the world was then and what the world was now. Let me give you an example, prefacing it a little bit. When we say something is the bomb... Does bomb mean explosives that blow people up? Of course not. So words over time change. And in fact, they change very frequently and often, especially in English. Our whole language is nothing but exceptions. There are no rules in English. And so when you look at the English language specifically, and most other languages as well, over time, they have a tendency to morph and the meanings change. And so it's a little preface for you as we move forward in our study tonight. You're going to see also that God's people are seen throughout the revelation of Jesus as suffering unjustly. Anybody feel like you're suffering unjustly today? I just did our taxes. I feel like I'm suffering unjustly. I'm like, are you kidding me? But realistically, when you look around the world, we, we don't suffer at all. But there are Christians suffering unjustly all over the world. If you're a Christian in South Sudan, your life is in danger tonight. If you're a Christian in Iran, your life is in danger tonight. In most of North Africa, your life would be in danger tonight. If you were a Christian in almost any Muslim country, you're not exactly the friend of the people. It is still very costly in much of the world to be a Christian. This book paints that picture in the first three chapters as we see the seven churches unfolded before us. We're going to look at those seven churches. And we're going to see that there was a present tense, real church, that there was a practical application of that particular church throughout church history, and there will be a future sense in which that is also true of the church throughout the whole period of time. And so the symbolism becomes very clear as to why it was used the way it was used. God's people do suffer unjustly and will continue to do so. The contents of this book contain all kinds of future or what we affectionately call eschatological events. Those eschatological events are things that pertain to things that have not yet happened. And yet the scriptures remind us that one day the church is out of here. Amen. Anybody excited about that one? Amen. You know, we might be home with Jesus tonight. Who knows? We could be sitting here and all of a sudden the trumpet sounds and we who are the alive who remain will be caught up in the air. That is a future event. It has not yet happened. So we're still looking forward to the future. And it's important to keep those future events future. Because what it does is it keeps our timeline where it belongs. The reason that we look at Scripture as a whole and not just the single book, because you can't have one thing in the book of Revelation deleting something in the book of Ezekiel. They have to match up. Otherwise, something in there is not God's Word. Amen? So we know that in the book of Ezekiel, in the 37th chapter, there is a little passage in there called the Valley of Dry Bones. And it refers to the nation Israel. 
And it said that one day they would be brought back together into the common land, into the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would be gathered together and speak a singular Hebrew language and that they would be a people again. So much of what we have in the book of Revelation until May 14th of 1948 was going to be future. We now have a key point that's passed in history. And so many of the things that we are looking at are now actually possible because that has been completed. And so there's a heavy emphasis on future events. And then the glorious thing, point four here on this outline, that God has always seen as saving his people at the end of time. And whether that's at the end of your life, because maybe like so many, uh, you live your life in a way that's not pleasing to God and God's grace is calling out to you and they're that kind of individual many dealing with a with a person happens and you give your life to Christ and then you're taken home. Or whether it's a group of people who were persecuted by the Romans and they were taken home. Or whether it's us as a church gathered together and God justly snatches away His bride. Or whether during the tribulation of days those who do not fall for the lie of the Antichrist and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they're in the tribulation, we see a just God saving righteous people. Always. As Isaiah said, there would be a remnant that would remain. That he would always deal with his people justly. Those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's always been true. It's never not been true. No matter what dangers lurk in our future. Some people don't like the book of Revelation because there is, if it were turned into a movie, it would be R-rated for sure. Maybe X. You know, if you really think about what's going on in the book, as we discuss and read and, and look at what it plainly states, how do you make a movie that portrays one-third of the world's population being wiped out? Today, if it happened today, more than two billion people would be dead like that. Two billion people. More than the total of all of the wars that have ever occurred in the history of mankind, gone in a single campaign. Those things to us, I don't really like that. But don't forget that God is just. He's always just. He's never unjust. And so if that's the end result, it's the only option left. It's his justice, it's his mercy crying out for the innocent that causes those things to happen. And so as we move through this, we're going to see the hand of God, the way we always understand the hand of God, reaching out mercifully and graciously and in righteousness, always saving those who are his. We can trust the character and the nature of Jesus Christ because he is the one that's unveiled here. Very important for us to get that. Because if you disassociate Jesus from the book of Revelation, you've actually missed the point. Some people look at this and it's so outlandish in its scope and some of the things that happen, it's just like it's like they want to try and move Jesus out of the picture so that they can focus in on these things that are going to happen. The whole book is the unveiling of Jesus. 
who was the author of it? Modern biblical scholars think that there might have been a second John, a John who was different than John the Apostle that we know. I think it's very clear from the internal evidence, and it's very clear specifically uh, from Justin Martyr, who was actually a disciple of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of John. So we're talking uh, a single generation of people away from the Apostle John himself. Polycarp says, I was a disciple, and Justin Justin, Justin Martyr was one of my disciples, and so my disciple actually was related to John himself. And so it's very close. Whenever you can get a document and you have a living generation that's one generation removed from the actual author, that's about as close as it gets in antiquity. And so it's very clear from the internal evidence that the disciple uh, wrote these things, uh, more than likely jotted them down. These scrolls were passed off. And it's widely believed that they were then translated within about a generation of John actually dying. And so this is this is not an obscure work. It's not like something that floated around for a thousand years and mysteriously popped up and somebody decided, well, we need to now translate this into the language that we currently speak. It went from the original language, the Greek, the Aramaic, directly into Latin from there, and Latin into the Germanic languages. And so we have copies uh, that are relatively old that we can look at. The thing that strikes me as you look at it is John was was a monk for all intents and purposes. He was isolated on a a tiny island in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and, And because of that isolation, the reason that people think that maybe he didn't write it is the language in it was shall we say, um, less refined than the gospel authors. When you look at the gospels, they were fairly well refined. The book of Revelation, it's the oldest manuscripts that we have of it, were fairly uh, unrefined in the linguistics that were used within them. And there's a reason for that. The dude's 90 years old. He doesn't have a scribe. He's sitting in a dank, musty cave on a little tiny island in the middle of the Aegean. And he doesn't have anybody to help him with his language. At the time the Gospels were authored, they would have had plenty of scribes, people that they could check with, say, look, you know, what, do you, what should we write here? Where does the punctuation need to be? That didn't happen. And so it's actually an authenticator uh, that John wrote it. Uh, he was under great duress as he was there. And so he didn't have an opportunity to polish off his grammar. Uh, when you look at the dating of the book of Revelation, it, it becomes very clear by what happens early on in it. As you look at the churches that are mentioned, there are these seven churches. They're in Asia Minor, basically most of them in modern-day Turkey. Uh, when you look at the, the church of Ephesus, the church of Laodicea, when you look at the church of Philippi, these specific churches, these are churches that were tortured by the Romans. And they were largely persecuted almost to the point of complete obliteration by the Romans. There was only one emperor that you, you could look at that actually did that. We all, you know, everybody knows the story that, you know, Nero fiddled while Rome burned, right? And you all know that story. That he stood around this 36-year-old guy while, while Rome was in flames. Matter of fact, some think that he actually started the fire. Uh, but but that doesn't fit the text because there wasn't that great persecution. He didn't like Christians, but he wasn't out rounding them up. 
But there was one emperor, Domitian, who absolutely did do that between 84 A.D. and, and 96 A.D., and what we see fits that time period, which is exactly the length of period of time that's believed that John lived. And so wrote during the reign of, of Domitian, Trajan, the last of the, the Roman emperors of that time, uh, was not anywhere near as vile. And so this happened between 84 and 96 when these things were written down. And, and it, the, the reason for the church being persecuted is they refused to bow to Caesar. Caesar was considered God. If you didn't bow to Caesar, it cost you your life. And so Christians would not do that. They would say, look, we have one Lord. His name is Jesus. And we're worshiping him. And because they would not worship Caesar, uh, they were wiped out. They were tortured. They were slain. Many of them had their faith severely tested. I mean, they, they, everything from being burned alive as human torches to being thrown to lions, to being forced into the gladiatorial games inside of the Colosseum. All of those things happened uh, during the reign of Domitian. As you look at the place that this was written, now, and Leanne will tell you, because she's actually been to this, the island of Patmos, it, it, is a, it is not a Turkish island, as some believe. It is a Greek island. Uh, it, is in the, it is in the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's off the coast of Turkey, and it's, it's just slightly to the south of, of Samos. And, and as you look at it today, there's actually a little tiny community. But if you look in the center of that picture uh, that's on my uh, left, your right, uh, there's a little tiny, looks like a castle there. There's actually a cave in the top of that hill, and that is the cave of John, is inside of that monastery. And so if you go there today, you can pay your, you know, your 35 bucks and go in and stare at a hole in the ground, and that's supposedly where John wrote these things. We, we do not know for sure, but there is reason to believe uh, because this happens to be a region of the island that's very, very uh, clogged with caves, uh, that it was probably in that general vicinity, if not maybe that exact cave. And so he writes in this little rocky island. It's in an island group called the Sporides, and it's, it's just a ton of little tiny islands in there, some of them uh, no bigger than running springs. And, and this one, Patmos, happens to be about 10 miles long and at places about 6 miles wide, so it's a little tiny island. It was one of four islands that were used... Uh, by the Romans as places that they would exile people who were officially uh, enemies of Rome. And so they put them there principally because if they lived, uh, they wouldn't live long. Little did they know that John was going to outlive his sentence uh, and would die a full life while there on the island of Patmos. And so he died of old age, likely there. We find also the, the recipients of this particular book are mentioned as these seven churches in the first three chapters. As you see them unfold, you're going to realize that these were literal letters that were written to literal churches that had very specific qualities about them that when you look at them, you go, man, there's always been a church that's been lukewarm. Amen? I, I would say that that is the church of the very last days. And if you look at the church in the world today, what one term could you use for the church that's still left in the world today? It's pretty lukewarm. And so you can see how the historical view of these seven churches begins with a very persecuted church, and it ends with a very lukewarm church. And so it's written to these churches that at the time were alive, people that were alive, that each one of them typified a period of church history and would do so until the end of the church age. And so there are seven churches that are the 
seven churches of Asia. Um, Thirty years before John wrote these words, these were vibrant churches. These were churches that were on fire for the Lord. But that persecution took its toll. The purpose of it is given in the book itself. It's to reveal Christ to them because these churches were being persecuted. And they were in that place where it's like, man, is God ever going to take care of our problems? Is he ever going to deal with all this stuff? And so it is an exhortation to Christians, basically, uh, that that time that they lived in, they needed to look forward, look up, shape up, and get ready, because the Lord Jesus was going to come. Now, as soon as we say that, the first thing that people do is say, well, you silly Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. It's absolutely true, but we're told why by Peter. He said, for the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. So there's a purpose for his waiting. There's a purpose for his long-suffering. The Lord, though he's told us what the end's going to look like, he's also said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my desire is for you to come to me. And so I'm not going to pour these things out on the world until I've given every opportunity for those who will be saved to be saved. And so to this day, nearly 2,000 years have passed. Some people are, ah. But that was exactly the question that Peter responded to. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? right around the corner. It's yet future. Might be tonight. Might be tomorrow. Could be next week. But what we do know is when we look at the time clock, which is the nation Israel, we are much closer than we've ever been. We're on the doorstep. The purpose, very clear. The theme is also clear because it unveils who Jesus is. Now, some people don't like the fact that Jesus one day is going to return to this earth as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But could I remind you that he has waited 2,000 years to do that? He has been patient in that waiting. He has been gracious. When I look at our nation today, I, I look and I, you know, praise God for the gracious long-suffering of the Lord Jesus because he has plenty of reasons to wipe us off the face of the earth. It is mind-bogglingly insane where we are today. You, you sit there and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure some of you caught some of the Super Bowl ads and you're sitting there watching these things. You're just like, how could that possibly have anything to do with a hamburger? It doesn't have anything to do with a hamburger. It has everything to do with our our country is in the sewer. So much so that that somehow is considered artistic. That used to be called pornography. And it hasn't taken very long for it to get that way. Less than 50 years. The Lord is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish but he does not suffer forever. There's an end to it. That's what this book is about. One day, the Lord is going to say, enough. I'm done. I've done all I can do. Anything beyond this is allowing sin to reign. 
It's going to begin to take its toll on the righteous. And he always, what did we say, saves the righteous. He's not going to let us go down without a fight. He's coming for his kids. So the theme of it is the unveiling of that. When you look at the book and just an overview of it, you you see his risen glory in chapter 1. You see him directing the church in the next couple of chapters. You see him as the lamb that's slain, a risen lamb of God in chapters 4 and 5. You see the wrath of the lamb of God coming upon a disobedient and rebellious earth in chapters 6 to 19. You see his return in chapter 19, the middle of it, to chapter 21. You see then a thousand year reign. Then you see a new heaven and a new earth. So it covers the whole gamut. All the way from him being born in a manger to risen in glory to a new heaven and a new earth. So it's the fullness of Jesus. Gives you the whole picture. It's a microcosm. And it's also the history of victory. I love that. Remember that it says in and of itself, Behold, I am coming soon. Now we look at it it's like, well, soon, 2,000 years. Well, if you're God and you live in eternity, 2,000 years is the blink of an eye. Amen? So you have to remember who's writing it is God. And so to him, soon, maybe 2,000 years. Peter said a year is a thousand days. A thousand days is a year. We don't know how God thinks about it. We just know that he's always right. Amen? So if he's waited a couple thousand years, for me, how many of you have unsafe friends and family, loved ones? Aren't you thankful that he's waited for 2,000 years? It's pretty easy to understand. Some people kind of disrespect the long-suffering of God in, in, in the face of what we're going through. It's just like, well, I should come back today. I'd like for him to wait at least another day. So my friends, my family, your friends, our families have an opportunity to come to Jesus. As you see this unveiled and unfolding before us, we see the lamb, we see the throne, we see these pictures of who Jesus really is. Now I want to remind you that when he died on the cross, he was the sinless lamb of God. Amen? We're going to be seeing that coming. We're beginning his trials on Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. The sinless Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice for you, for me, for us, for the whole world. He died that we might live. Amen? Eternally. So he's the Lamb of God. He has now left, and he actually told us where he was going. He actually tells the Sanhedrin, the Son of Man will be at the right hand of God the Father. He tells us where he's going. He said, I'm going to my glorious throne in heaven. The book of Revelation gives us the other end. It says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and when we see him come, he comes back the second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't here the first time as a lion. He was here as a lamb to die, but he will come back as the lion to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to put down the armies of unrighteousness, and to bring about eternal righteousness. Something that we have not seen on this earth. You know, every beauty pageant, well, what would you like to see? World peace. I want world peace. It's a noble goal, isn't it? I world peace is a noble goal. Watching those people in ISIS this last week burn alive a Jordanian pilot inside of a cage, I'm like, I want world peace. I would like world peace. But I know this, it's not happening until the Prince of Peace comes back. 
what your Bible says. So you can pray for it, work towards it, but it's going to happen when our king comes. For sure. He's going to put down every rebellion. It will be taken care of. We have here some key words. We also have a wonderful outline. If you want to look down at verse 19 here in chapter 1, it is a three-part outline. It is then absolutely laid out very clearly in the entire book. This outline is what you will see. Notice what it says there in verse 19. He's speaking to John. This is Jesus speaking. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. So it's three parts. What you have seen. John, what you lived through. The age where the church was persecuted, because remember who this guy is. He was with Jesus. He was at the cross. He saw the Savior murdered. He also ran to the tomb with Peter and saw the risen Lord. He said, so you write about the things you've actually seen yourself. He said, I also want you to write about the things that are, the things that are going on right now in the world. And so he writes the letters to the seven churches. Those are the things that are. The things that actually were at that time. And then he says, that which will take place later. So it provides an outline. When you look at the book, you're going to see chapter 1 from verses 9 to 20, the things which you have seen. That's what he writes. Chapter 2 to chapter 3, basically into chapter 3, the things which are now, the seven churches. The remainder of the book are the things which are to come. So when John wrote them, the entire book from the end of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 22 is all stuff that was future. Now we look at all those things and we see how they're compressing down in time and how close they actually are. Because nothing in the book of Revelation in any way diminishes what Daniel wrote or Zechariah wrote or Ezekiel wrote. The prophet Isaiah wrote, read the last several chapters of the book of Isaiah. It speaks of a wonderful time when the lamb will lie down with the lion. That ain't happening. Today, the lambs get eaten by the lion. That if you reach into a viper hole, you're going to die. But you'll be able to do that one day. Little children will reach into the vipers. No, they won't even be harmed. Don't send your kids out viper hunting. The main problem that people have is the interpretation of this particular book. and That's where I want to spend a little bit of time tonight. When you look at it, the golden rule of all scriptural interpretation is to allow scripture to interpret scripture. That's the golden rule. Because scripture itself very often helps us understand what other scripture says. And in fact, the main biblical way that we find a proper hermeneutics, the study of those words that are contained within Scripture, is to allow the first time that a word is used to dictate how it is used in the future. That dynamic equivalence. We look at it and go, okay, that's what it means. This is what it said there. We're going to use that as the way that we interpret it going forward. And so as we interpret this book, um, how would people have understood this? Because it seems so crazy. It seems so bizarre. It had to have been plain enough that when the churches, the seven churches, got this letter, that they would have been able to make sense of it. 
It could not have been a total mystery to them either. And now you move forward 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years, and it needs to make sense to us because God was the author. Amen? The Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture. And so if the Holy Spirit is the author of all Scripture, and it would have made sense to people 2,000 years ago, and it has not been yet fulfilled, and we get to this place in time, it has to still make sense to us as well. How are you going to do that across that kind of a cultural divide? Uh, let me give you a little, a little insight. When you travel to Central South American countries, to African continent, to parts of Asia, you go to Mongolia and you talk to people about an iPad, they're going, what? Uh-huh. But if you talk to them about a dragon, they're going to know what a dragon is. Dragons are fairly universal throughout all humankind. You talk to them about fire, they're going to know what that is. You see, symbols transcend time. And so as you begin to write these things, if the Lord was going to put this into a document that would make sense to us and also have made sense to them, God would have to do it in something that's timeless. And so I believe that in order to preserve this wonderful piece of apocalyptic literature, he simply puts it into a language that everyone throughout that 2,000 years could come to an understanding of. Now, we in our modern age of Google, amen, can I just remind you that not everything you read on the Internet is true? <laughs> I get some crazy, well, you know, I, I Googled this, and uh, look, if you Google my name, you'll probably find like 800 of me, and there's only one of me. That's all the world needs. I'm bad enough by myself, but you, you sit there, oh, yeah, I read about Jeff Gill on the Internet. Well, it's not even me. It's somebody else. I actually got a tax bill one time. I didn't know it, but I actually owned four planes and a boat up in San Francisco. And I was in default on the taxes. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, I'm paying the taxes getting the planes. I'll figure out a way to do this. They gotta be worth more than the twenty grand that's owed on the taxes. I'm wanting the planes. Give me those things. And then I found out by Googling me it wasn't me. So not everything you read on the internet is true. But in a book that's timeless authored by God, everything that you read is true. And the story's not gonna change. Your understanding of it may be culturally relevant at the time that you read it, but the meaning's going to stay clear. And so that's the reason for the symbolism. We're beginning a journey through this amazing book. And as we study it, we're going to see God's in total control of the entire universe. And when I say that, the first thing that people often ask is, well, you know, how come we have death? How come we have dying? How come innocent children? We get all those questions. And they're good questions, by the way. I don't want to diminish those questions at all. But the fact of the matter is, there's a big difference between what God allows and what God ordains. What God allows on this earth and what God ordains to be his perfect will. In other words, his permissive will versus his perfect will. He allows all kinds of things that are our human choices. And then as he is completely sovereign, he takes every one of those silly things that we do that are not his perfect will. And he works them together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But there is definitely evil in this world. There is legitimate evil in this world. 
But in order for God to be supremely loved, he has to also have the capacity to be supremely hated. So there has to be something for you to choose, us to choose, that is not him. Otherwise, he's forced us into loving him. And it's no longer love. And so we have evil in the world. Satan is alive and well. And there is a battle raging for the souls of every single person who's ever walked on the face of the earth. And so that battle, in the end, is won. It's the story of the book of Revelation. To some degree, this entire book is history spoken in advance. These words that we're going to read reveal things about the future that no one could possibly know. Think of it for a second. You're writing about an army of a couple hundred million men. You're talking about people of all these people groups being wiped out and destroyed. Hey, Jerry, I have voices up here. I think it's Legion. Can you turn off the monitors, I believe? Um, you guys hear that? Yeah, I thought so. It, huh? Ooh. Excuse me. I just turned off the devil. <laughs> you didn't know I had that power, did you? <laughs> Get thee behind me, Satan. But the book of Revelation shows us how political powers and all these, these things that have transpired over the, over the last 2,000 years have all worked together as God has been working on his plan in mankind. You know, think about it. Think about all the different movements that have been on the earth to try and, you know, say, well, we're of the Lord. Or this. Think of the, the Reformation period that happened in the 1500s. You have the Catholic Church, basically the Roman Catholic Church, which were Christians of the Roman tradition. You know, all of a sudden they, they, they have become something that's completely whack. And they're selling, in essence, indulgences, that says, well, you can have forgiveness of your sins, but you need to pay for them. I'm pretty sure Jesus did that on the cross. I could be wrong, but I think he said it is finished, and the veil is torn, and that we could enter in by the blood of the Lamb. I believe that's what he said. But now you've got a religious movement that moves from worshiping the true and the living God to selling forgiveness of sin. And so Martin Luther comes along. He, he reads the book of Romans. And by faith will we be justified, it says there, of the Apostle Paul. And all of a sudden, this new dynamic swings into play. What, we, we don't have to be a member of the organization to have salvation? You're going to see that the book of Revelation actually talks about a church like that. It would have been completely foreign in John's day. But it was on the horizon. It would come nearly 1,500 years later, but it would be true. And so we see these people groups, these political groups, these religious groups. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 16, talking about the church being built. He said there in verse 18, I, I say to you that you are, you are Petrus. You are the little rock. And on this rock himself... 
It's a first-person pronoun. He's speaking about himself. Upon me, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, the gates of hell haven't prevailed against the church, have they? Seems like they have. At times, the church has gotten pretty close. But who's always stepped into the picture and saved the church? It's been the Lord. Matter of fact, the, the church itself very often has been its own problem. And so we see history spoken of in advance. We, we see and we will see as we begin the actual book next week, uh, this outline that's there. As he's writing in A.D. 95, 96, speaking of these things, uh, it, it basically is describing an age of the church that when you were to look at when Jesus was born, so A.D. 33, all the way into our present time, if you start taking out the things that have now come to pass, you've only got the sliver that's left from about chapter 6 to chapter 19. That's what's left. And if you read that, you know what you're not going to find in all those chapters? Not one mention of the church. Church is not there. You know why that is? Because we're home with Jesus. One of the reasons I strongly believe that we will be raptured off of this rock because all that hell that breaks loose on earth, there's no work of the church. The restrainer is removed. The Holy Spirit's no longer in the world. The main source of the Holy Spirit on an individual basis in the world is the Holy Spirit in you as the body of Christ. You're going to be gone. Can I remind you that's only seven years? That's all that is. It's basically seven years. So all of human history, should the rapture happen today, those last chapters are going to transpire in a very short period of time. I am coming quickly, he said. Quickly from when? Quickly in his mind's eye, in his view. A lot of these events that we see, and notice it says things that are hereafter, there are three basic principles of interpretation, and I, and I want to just give you those, those things. Some students, some teachers of, of Scripture will say that you just take the whole thing literally. Well, that's... People standing on the moon and stuff, that's pretty hard to believe that God intended us to take that literally. Amen? I think it's pretty safe to say. I don't think there's going to be a woman standing on the moon. Okay? I also don't think that you can take part of it literally and part of it symbolically because then you just have a mess and humans then become the link is to try and figure out which is which. I don't think God would do that to us either. So the way I believe, and I think the only way that actually works, the third approach is to read the book of Revelation as a series of symbols. Those symbols have a literal meaning, and those literal meanings are applied to literal events. The symbols themselves are then pointing towards something that's actually going to happen. You can do that for the whole book, but you cannot do that if you take part of it literally and part of it symbolically because too much of it's linked together. In it, we're going to see a great red dragon. We're going to see a woman standing on the moon. Uh, we're going to see all kinds of extraordinary beasts. Uh, we're going to be seeing people that come back alive after having been dead. 
Uh, we're going to see someone with a mortal wound that's raised up to life, that walks, all kinds of stuff. That when we look at it, we're going, ah, what's he talking about? The great prostitute of Babylon. Well, what is that? Is there like a red light district someplace in Iraq that we're unaware of? What, you know, what is that? You see your average person, if you applied it literally, what would it be? It'd be a great whore of Babylon, amen? So there's, you know, evidently it would have to be a literal person at some point in time. It doesn't work. But it does work if it's a Babylonian world system. It does work if it's speaking of a system that is governmental and religious and monetary. By the way, that's exactly what Daniel said. So as we see these things unfold, we'll be looking at those approaches that way. So doubt that it's literal. I think it's crazy. Half and half is silly. It's confusing. Symbols that point to real things. Those real things are real events. That's how we're going to do it. You're going to also see that these things that are talked about here refer specifically to the church. Very important that you understand what the church is. Many people think that the church is a building. If you talk to most people in the world who are not born-again Christians with a knowledge of Scripture, they will actually, well, there's a Baptist church on the corner. And there's a Mormon church over there. And there's a Presbyterian church over there. And there's a Catholic church over there. And they'll point to the buildings. That's what they think the church is. The word that's translated most often in the New Testament church actually comes from a Greek word, ecclesia, which means a group of called out ones, people. So the church is people. It's always been people. It's never been buildings. It is not denominations. It's not one group versus another group. It's all the people who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ combined together. It's the church of God. The whole thing. And part of the problem that we've had in our modern world is people have begun to say that, well, this church is the real church, and that church is not the real church, and this church is not the real church. It's real easy. God's people are God's church. And whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So it's all of us who do that. I think we're going to be most amazed when we get to heaven by who's not there. When we get there, we're going to go, yeah, well, I can imagine that person got there. But there's going to be a lot of churches, I think, that are missing because they think they're the only way. There's one way. He's unveiled in the book of Revelation. His name is Jesus. Church of God's not a building. And in fact, it's really interesting that when in the book of Acts, Luke chapter 2, if you want, Luke book 2, there in the second chapter, when it says there that the Lord adds to his church daily those that are saved, it actually uses the word ecclesia. It doesn't use the word building. You know, it isn't something. He says he adds to the body of Christ, the body of believers, the group of people that know Jesus, he adds to that daily. A couple of questions come to mind in, in this, what I believe is the only way to interpret this. Why would God write, write a book like this? Why did he choose to use symbolic language? And when you look at these things, he, he could have simply spelled things out. But if he had done that, and if he is, as I believe he is, speaking of events that in 2015 are still future, 
Can you imagine talking to somebody in John's day about the horrors of nuclear warfare? Well, there's going to be an atomic bomb. And the atomic bomb's going to go off and it's going to wipe out millions of people in this particular area. And there's going to be armored warfare and there are going to be things, missiles that you've never seen. If God had used those terms then, they would have been completely meaningless and people would have said, we're throwing this sucker out. Don't read that book. John was deluded. He was crazy when he was in that. He spent too much time in the dirt. (laughs) Because he's talking about missiles and warfare and 200 million men armies and a third of the world's population being wiped out. I mean, the Romans are good, but they ain't that good. It would have made no sense. It would have been dismissed as absolutely insane. But if you talk about horses, and you talk about chariots, and you talk about locusts, and you talk about fire, you talk about brimstone, you talk about swords, people would have understood that. So we have to look at those things now some 2,000 years later, and what was God saying? What was he preserving? You have to remember also at that time Christianity was becoming a radical threat to the Roman Empire. And because of that, much of the church moved underground, and it used symbolic language. The fish that maybe some of you have on your car. Everybody used to have the ichthus on the back of our cars. Amen? I-O-X-O-Y-E. You would, you would have that on there. Jesus Christ Lord is basically what it means. Well, they did that because that symbol, rather than walking around, Hi, I'm Pastor Jeff. They would draw that fish on the ground. They would scribe that on a rock with a piece of charcoal. It was a symbol that they knew that the Romans didn't know. And the same is true for the book of Revelation. These were symbols that people who were reliant upon the Holy Spirit, who understood what was going on in in the world at that time, could have said, ah, God's up to something. Because I know the church in Ephesus. I know the church at Philadelphia. I've heard of the church at Laodicea. And you know what? It's true. That's true. That's how those people are. Great is Diana, God of the Ephesians. They would have understood very, very clearly. They would have understood what a lukewarm church was like Laodicea. Yeah, they hardly even matter. Now we look at it and we can go, there's a whole bunch of the church, the people, the body of Christ that fall into that last church. Amen? And so as that last church becomes the church that's left, we know that we're near the end. During those 60 years, the gospel was being preached. Converts were added to the church. Christian faith was nearly stamped out because it was too bold. And so God sends it underground. The symbols actually protected the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Challenge somebody that you know doesn't know the, the Lord at all. Find one of your favorite heathen friends. And I mean that actually respectfully. 
somebody who does not know the Lord, and sit down at lunchtime and say, I would like to read a book with you. It's the book of Revelation. And read the book of Revelation with them. And they're going to roll their eyes. They're going to go, oh, now I know I'm not one of those. Until they get to the part where it's like you start telling them, you know, there's a church in the world and it's just not very effective anymore. And the Lord said, I would that they would be hot or cold, but rather they are lukewarm and therefore I have spewed them out of my mouth. And you ask them, what do you think about the church in the world today? Well, it's kind of ineffective, doesn't do. Mm -hmm. Really? My Bible says that's the last church. That's the one that's going to be around when the Lord comes and gets the rest of us. You'd be surprised. But that knowledge is spiritually appraised. The carnal mind doesn't know it. All of a sudden you share it with them because you know it's true. It becomes life, becomes helpful, becomes beneficial. If they'd have written it just in a singular language like Greek or Aramaic, there were people that didn't speak Greek. There were people that didn't speak Aramaic. There's people that didn't speak Hebrew. There would be people who didn't speak German, people who don't speak Latin. Do you get the picture? But if you leave it in symbols that are translated into that language, but they're still the same symbol, somebody can go, the symbol I can trace. I can follow that. I can't follow the linguistics of it. And so as you look at those things, like I said before, a bomb no longer means an explosive. It could mean something that's really good now, right? Your children walk up to you, Dad, it was the bomb. I'm like, really? Did it, you know, did it blow something up? Did anyone die when the bomb? No, Dad, it means good. I'm like, really? I thought you were talking about PET or C4 or, you know, you were talking about a smart bomb or a JDAM or something. No, it means good. Symbols transcend language and time. And God can give us the ability to understand what those are. When you look at the truths contained within Revelation, especially as we get into the historical part of these things, you're going to see that there's actually nine parallel visions in the book of Revelation. Try and wrap this up tonight. Those events foretell things which will occur in the time span of the entire Christian era. And they run parallel to each other. So you have political events, you have religious events, you have historical events all running parallel to each other. So you have a church age. That church age has a persecuted church. In that church age, you have a very loving church in that, that does good. In that church age, you have a lukewarm church. Is this the seven churches, just a little sample of them. You have the churches. Then you have the history of what happens to the church, the persecution of the church, the exaltation of the church, the work of the church. You have the historical part of it. And so you begin to see how these visions that are throughout the book of Revelation pick up from when John writes to the day that we live in and carry us into the future. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, we'll see those parallel lines running side by side. When we get to the, one of the things that always messes with people's heads is, you know, okay, well, it's the fourth trumpet and it's the third bowl and it's the sixth scroll. What in the world? Why couldn't he just said it was this or that? 
again, because it's being preserved for time. And so as we look at these things, we can go, okay, that's when this occurred. That's what happened during this period of human history. That's when this religious movement was underway. And so we can line all those parallel lines up. I also want to remind you that Revelation is not a novel. You don't read it from the beginning and go to the end. That's not how it works. There's just simply a parallel theme that goes throughout uh, the entire book. So the seven churches representative of the situations that are going to exist in seven periods of church history, beginning in A.D. 33. Uh, they'll transpire in a region that's currently in modern-day Turkey, which who knows what it'll be next week, but right now it's Turkey. So why do you suppose he didn't say the church is in Turkey? Because it hasn't always been Turkey. It was Asia Minor at the time. Matter of fact, Turkey didn't even exist until less than 100 years ago. Amen? So we would say today, oh, it's the churches in Turkey. It's not the churches in Turkey, it's the churches in Asia Minor. And so if you look back, where was Asia Minor at the time of Christ? Ah, in modern-day Turkey. But it was the church at Ephesus, church at Laodicea. Also, those political events which occur, they transcend all of the Caesars and all the governing officials. It brings you right across socialism and communism. Can you imagine if John had said, there's going to be a Marxist regime? Everybody would be going, oh, what? I hope there's some socialism. Everybody would have been for that, kind of like people are today. It's like, we want socialism. No, not really. What you want is freedom in Christ. No political force is going to overcome the Lord. No church force is going to overcome the Lord. It's going to be the Lord when he comes is going to just unwrap all of human history. And in fact, the church is very often, as, as was the case during the Crusades, as was the case during the Spanish Inquisition, has been part of the problem. The church has misrepresented Jesus. The church has caused people to believe that, that Jesus Christ is something other than who he really is. That's why he needs to be unveiled, so we can see the real Jesus, the Jesus that cares about the lost, a Jesus that's very long-suffering, so much so that it's been 2,000 years since he left. But he is coming again, and he's coming to get his church. He's going to pull us out of this mess. And then finally, as we close tonight, when you read the book of Genesis, all of us want to kick Adam, okay? Not Adam, who's here with us. The other Adam, the old guy. I did not tell you to go kick Adam. Okay, He will cuff you and throw you in the unit out in the parking lot. But all of us are kind of like, man, I have this original sin. Where did it come from? And we all talk about it. Well, it came from Adam. So we're all going to get there. We'll get to heaven. There'll be a long line. That's You'll know Adam is at the front of that line. I can't believe you did that. But here's the good news. The book of Revelation says that the Lord Jesus unwraps everything that went wrong in Genesis. So when you look at the book of Genesis, we have the first creation. The book of Revelation, we get a new creation. We have the establishing of night. When you get the revelation, night's done away with. Now, I don't know about you. I kind of like the night because that's when I sleep. But I don't think I'm going to have to sleep. I'm pretty excited about that. I can fish 24 hours a day. Because right now I fall in the water after about eight hours. 
We had the sun to govern the day, the moon at night. They're going to be done away with by the time we get to Revelation 21. Why? Because the light of the Lord himself will light all of creation. So everything that got messed up, you look up in that night sky and there's that smog and you can hardly see the moon and you're just like, ah, what a bummer. Can you imagine when Jesus lights the heavens? So everything that got messed up gets fixed in the book of Revelation. It's an awesome story. Because there are some things that I kind of regret. I've, I've shared with people before. You know, I would have loved to have been born in like the year of the westward expansion. I would have loved to have gotten in a Conestoga wagon, just like, I'm going to make it to the other side of the country. Just who I am. I'm going to get over there. I don't care how far it is. I'm just going to go that way. I would have liked to have seen the, the prairies before they killed all the buffaloes. I would have liked to have sit, sat out and listened to a wolf howl. You know, all these people that want to kill wolves. Like, why do you want to kill wolves? Yeah, they eat things, but they're awesome. Well, one day, the book of Revelation fixes all that. I've always wanted a pet lion. How many of you looked at Aslan and you wanted a pet lion? Okay, you just... One day you're going to be able to do that. What got messed up in the garden gets fixed in the book of Revelation. It's a glorious picture. It's a book of victory. We'll pick up the first few verses next week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time tonight. And we just look forward with great anticipation as you unveil yourself to us here in this amazing book. Lord, we do want to have that blessing of the ones who read it, the ones who hear it, and the ones who obey it. Uh, Lord, your word says, declares in itself that you bear witness that this is you. And so, God, we want to hear about you. We want to know about you. We want to be excited about the victory that we have in Christ. And so we pray that you would simply unveil yourself to us as we study your magnificent word. We love you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang, get ready, for his word is truth.